1 Samuel chapter 28, picking, off, picking up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 3 to the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel 28, verse 3, this is God's word to us. Let's give our attention to it. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams, or by Urim, or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up. And he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. 
Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman said to Saul, and when the Came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him. And he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is God's word to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you and we bless you for this good word. And we pray that you would instruct us, that you would give us understanding, that you would instruct our hearts by your Spirit, who illuminates our spirit to the truth of these deep things. Help us not to judge these things according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of truth who teaches us through them. We ask and pray that that you work in our hearts and our minds now to believe these words and to receive them, to receive them with joy and with edification and ultimately to the praise of your holy name. Be glorified in our contemplation this afternoon. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, there have been quite a few of you within our congregation that have been looking forward to us getting to this chapter And we have finally arrived. When you consider all of Scripture in terms of difficult passages, this is certainly one of those that stand out. I mean, our cast of characters for this historical narrative this afternoon comprise of a witch, of a ghost, of a walking dead man. This seems more like a story from the series of Narnia than it does from Scripture. And so... Should it come as any surprise when debates arise about science versus Scripture, reason versus faith, the natural realm versus the spiritual, that that many have a heyday with this particular text? Our curious minds want us to mind the, the rarities and the oddities of this passage to answer all the pressing questions. However, you need to know, you need to know that when you ask the wrong questions, you will never get the right answers. Our modern musings can tease out answers that look more like the interpreter than the biblical writer. That is, what the Holy Spirit intended for us to understand about this text. The desire to find something that is novel, something cool, something esoteric or relevant can cause us to miss the clear and beneficial meaning of this chapter. Primarily, 
that God's word and his promises to raise up your king and your savior, these are imperishable. Well, as you may recall, last week we left off with David still in exile among the, among the Philistines. The dangers and oppositions in Israel were so bad that David needed to get out of Dodge. In fact, his life depended upon it. And, and now, in chapter 28, the camera is going to shift back over to the nation of Israel. And while David is in a foreign land, the focus of our attention is drawn back to King Saul. It's like we're about to see a contrast between 27 and 28. Put a pin in that. Now, in order to set the stage, the narrator reminds us of two past events, a funeral and a policy, or we could say this way, a law. First, there is Samuel's death as well as his burial. Now, this exactly happened back in chapter 25 when we covered it, but, but we were reminded once again of it in order to make it fresh in our minds. The great prophet, priest, and judge has died. And was honored by all of Israel by being buried in his hometown of Ramah. After a lifetime of faithful service, the ministry of Samuel has come to an end. Secondly, though, we are informed that sometime in the past, Saul had banished all the necromancers and mediums from the land. Now, we don't know when he did this, when he passed this policy, but it's definitely a good one. For in the law, all forms of necromancy are outlawed. In fact, to be a practitioner of necromancy was a capital crime with the penalty of stoning. So this violent banishment of necromancy by Saul is a correct one. Saul here is following the law of God. He is even instituting religious reforms. And so with this law, Saul is promoting the pure worship of the Lord alone. Now we need to take just a quick moment. We've got a lot to cover this afternoon. But let's take a quick moment and ask and answer two questions. What exactly is necromancy and divination? And the second one, why did the Lord forbid it so strongly? Well, divination is the practice of using odd and oftentimes dark ways to learn the future or things that, that are secret. Now, back in Israel's days, there, there were a bunch of ways that they did this. They could have thrown arrows, red livers. They could stare at the clouds, use magic. The list really could go on. It's that proverbial reading of tea leaves to figure out your destiny or maybe just the weather tomorrow or if he or she is the one. If you need help with that one, come see me later. Now, necromancy was a form in which they called up ghosts of the dead. It was a part of ancestral worship in the cult of the dead, which was the prevalent view 
and practice in the ancient Near East and in the area around Israel. But why? Why did the Lord prohibit practices like this for His people, even calling it an abomination? Well, first, brothers and sisters, divination is an attempt to learn the secret things of the Lord, which God explicitly tells us that He has not given us. Deuteronomy 29.29 says it this way, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Listen to me. Secret things like what tomorrow holds, how many kids you're going to have, and so on. These don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. They are not given to us. God gave us the revealed things of His Word, but beyond this, we cannot and we should not go. And the point is that we must remain content with God's Word. Secondly, Divination was connecting to the spiritual world, which is why it was often linked to idolatry. It was attempting to communicate with demons, with spirits, with ghosts, and quote, other gods, if you will, in order to learn secret knowledge. And this is why the Bible assumes that this is actually real. The Bible is not denying this, and and I want you to think about this with me. As moderns, we tend to think of this stuff as just all being a bunch of whack, right? And it being false. And of course, Scripture points out that there are many frauds and fakes, make no mistake, yet it doesn't deny these things as a reality, a certain power to divination, even though science can't prove it. Brothers and sisters, there is a dark and spiritual world. We know very little about it. For God doesn't want us to know anything about it, which is exactly why He has outlawed it. So when divination comes up in Scripture, we shouldn't... Listen to me, this is very important, okay? We should not get caught up in if it's real or if it's possible. Let me say it this way. We should not try to divine divination. Rather, we are to listen, and we are to learn what our Lord is teaching us through it, and that is about the sovereign and holy will of our God. Well, now that we have set up the background of our narrative, the text brings us back to the impending battle with the Philistines. Like a chessboard, the battlefield is set. The Philistine army is camped, encamped at Shunem, which is on the, that says on the north at the Jezreel Valley and just at the south on a ridge called Gilboa. Saul has marshaled the army of Israel. And so this is once again one of these epic battle face-offs, if you will. Two large armies looking face-to-face at one another. Now Israel... Israel has a bird's eye view on the edge of Gilboa. 
They can look down into the valley and they can see all the shining iron and the glittering chariots of the Philistines. And and it is this scenic overview that scares Saul. It does so to the point that he is so afraid. Note what it says in verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Saul here is absolutely terrified. His heart shakes within him at the sight of this Philistine horde. And Saul needs and wants some help. He requires counsel from the Lord. Now this desire for help from the Lord, make no mistake, is a good thing. Let's not, let's not say it's bad. It is proper to desire the Lord before going into battle to find out His will. Now, after Saul had tried all three lawful ways to hear from the Lord, there was no answer. Look at and note verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Listen to this. It's the three ways, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Here we see that God was silent towards Saul. The Lord has hidden his face from Saul. Now, make no mistake. This divine silence shouts loudly that the Lord is indeed communicating communicating something. Men, as you know, when your wife gives you the silent treatment, you know something's up. She's still speaking loud and clear with no words. Thus Saul should have known that God's silence was indeed his punishment. God not answering is the punishment for being forsaken by the Lord. Now Saul either doesn't pick up on this or he absolutely refuses to accept it. He has to know God's will though. So if the lawful means are closed off to him, let's try some unlawful ones. I mean, this would be like saying, hey, the store is closed. Let's just break in and steal that bag of bread. So Saul asked his servants to find him a necromancer. Now the text literally calls this woman a mistress of spirits or ghosts, which means that she can call ghosts up from the dead. Now this move by Saul is very telling for us, isn't it? For one, it shows how Saul is a spiritual bonehead. I didn't know other word to use. Think about this. If God doesn't answer through lawful ways, do you think that He is going to answer in a way that He considers an abomination? This also exposes Saul's desperateness, though. He's so scared, he is so distraught that he must have help. He needs God's aid. He does need God's counsel. And so in part, we, we acknowledge in part that this is good. But on the other hand, he's completely doing some very wrong reactionary stuff. I mean, he's a beggar resorting to theft. Instead of chasing after a necromancer, Saul should have turned to God with confession, with sacrifice to a priest. Oh wait, he killed all those. Well, Saul's servants have no problem locating a necromancer. There's one 
just next door in the town of Indore. Now, there are two noteworthy things that we should know about Indore. First, in Joshua 17, verses 11 through 12, it tells us that it is of a mixed population. That is, brothers and sisters, this was a part of the promised land that Israel failed to dispossess the Canaanites. That means that they, did, they failed to conquer it. So the Israelites and the Canaanites, they are living side by side in this city. And so it should come as no surprise then that there would be a necromancer here. Secondly, Endor is located, listen to this, on the other side of the Philistine encampment. Okay, So you've got to get where they're at, and he's got to cross on the other side of the Philistine army to get there. This, this would be considered a dangerous mission for anyone, much more for the king of Israel. Ironically, then, as David is in Philistine territory killing idolaters, Saul is in Israel seeking an idolater, a necromancer. Do you guys get the contrast here? Well, with the necromancer located, Saul is off to the races. And his deeds of darkness cannot stand the light. Saul goes both at night and he goes in disguise. Symbolically, Saul divests himself as if of his kingly garments. The narrator really kind of highlights that. Why? Well, he puts on common clothes. These actions are not fit for a king. I suppose if you're going to call for the dead, you can't do it, do it during the day. I mean, dark deeds do require the shadow of night. These are all symbolic things of just how bad he has gone. What should stand out to us is that the nighttime disguise revealed to us that Saul knows what he is doing is wrong. Of course, this is the way of sin, isn't it? When you know something is wrong, but you just have to do it anyway, then you hide your sin. We do it in secret. So secrecy is a testimony against us all. We know better. Well, soon Saul arrives at home of the witch, and he makes his demand. Look at the last part of verse 8. It says, And he said, Divine for me, by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now, this necromancer has a better conscience than King Saul. In fact, she reminds Saul of his own policy, of his own law. Look at verse 9. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? She says, Look, I could die for doing this this thing that you're asking of me. This necromancer has more respect for Saul's law than he does himself. At least she fears the punishment. We can say it that way. So Saul has to assure her that she will not get into trouble. But this is where things get really interesting for us. For how does he assure her safety? He does so by making... This is weird, guys, but he makes an oath to the Lord. Look at note, note verse 10. But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. In the name 
of the Lord saw promises that it's okay to break God's law. Let me just let that sit for a second. In the name of the Lord, it's okay to break God's law. Could you imagine a prophet saying, you know what? It's okay for you to have another wife in addition to the one you already have. Saul makes a reckless and an invalid oath. That's my point. You can't swear by the Lord that breaking his law will not bring guilt. You can't do that. This would be to set the Lord against himself. Saul's spiritual ineptitude, his desperateness, makes him blind to the obvious. Well, in the end, the necromancer agrees to help Saul. He gives her the name Samuel, and poof, he appears. The necromancer sees Samuel. Now, how the witch summoned Samuel is not recorded for us. This should take us not by surprise, since necromancy is illicit. It's not proper to describe the gritty details of sinful and dark practices, and so Scripture is not going to tell us how this happened. Yet what we should see, and is clear in our text, is that the, how the necromancer sees Samuel. Look at verses 12 and 14. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, this fits what we know about necromancy in the ancient world, that only the necromancer sees the spirit, and typically only the inquirer hears what the spirit has to say. Thus, as we read, Saul asked the witch, what does she see? And she responds, I see this God rising up out of the earth. Now, this use of God here doesn't mean that He is divine, okay? The word for God can also be used for dead people who have gained honors. Or another example, angels. In fact, God here most likely refers to some kind of visual shine. The Samuel's spirit shines with glory associated with God. In our language, we could say it this way, He's shown like an angel, Okay? Yet Samuel's appearance is retained. For the witch further describes him as an old man who is still wearing that famous prophetic robe. Samuel still looks like he did when he was alive. In fact, it's the robe in which the the witch lady describes that makes Saul know that it is Samuel. This would be the same robe that was torn from Saul's hand back in chapter 15. Now, with Samuel present, he talks. First thing out of his mouth is probably what you would expect. It's probably something all of us would say if we woke up from the dead. Hey, why have you disturbed me? Samuel doesn't just sound angry. He does sound just a little annoyed, doesn't he? He finally has escaped the frustrations of life. He has finally escaped Saul himself. And now Saul has to pester him in the grave? What a nuisance. Saul, however, cannot take a hint. He just starts talking. He starts whining to Samuel about his desperate situation. 
The Philistines are attacking me. God has forsaken me. The Lord will not answer my inquiries. Now this instructs us a great deal about Saul, doesn't it? For one, he understands that God is punishing him, that he is being forsaken. Two, he feels the utter need for God's help. And yet Saul does not turn to idols. Rather, he seeks out Samuel, the prophet of the Lord. However, he does it through the illicit and pagan ways of necromancy. This is stupid. It's strange. You see, Saul's heart is in the right place, at least in part, but it's going about it in all the wrong ways. This revealed then Saul's major problem. And I would say that it's a key part of our text. His major problem is this, that Saul is not content with God's word. Think about this with me. Saul is not content with God's word. He feels like he needs more. And it is something we have seen throughout 1 Samuel the entire time. Saul, uh, the, the word of the Lord is not enough for him. He desires the hidden things that do not belong to him or to us. What God has given is not enough for Saul. He thinks he needs more, and he's willing to take it by force. It's precisely on this level that Samuel addresses Saul. First, Samuel rebukes him for inquiring. Note verse 16, and Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The the question, why then do you ask or inquire of me, is Samuel saying, why did you resort to necromancy? Why Why can't the dead... Or excuse me, let me rephrase this. You can't ask the dead about the living. Next... Samuel is going to repeat what Saul already knows, what the Lord has already spoken to him. Look at 17. The Lord has done to you as He spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Listen, Saul, if God is silent, this is your punishment. You cannot circumvent God's punishment here. If the Lord has locked the door, there is no other way in. There's no open window. There's no crack or change in your situation here. And as we just read, Samuel points Saul right back to God's word. Listen, Saul, the Lord is doing what I've already told you he was going to do. I told you that for your sin, for not destroying the Amalekites, that he would take the kingdom from your hand, that he would rip it out from you, and he would give it to a more worthy neighbor. My point is this, that Saul had all the answers that he needed already. By the word of the Lord, he just refused to listen. Think about this with me and what what this could have looked like. I don't know if you guys have reflected upon this much, but 
back when Samuel said this initially to him, what would it have looked like if he would have freely given the throne over to David at that very moment? Have you guys ever considered that? At the very moment that the word of the Lord, the punishment that came down, the judgment of God, that he would have fallen on his knees, acknowledged the word of God, handed the keys of the kingdom right over to David and served rather than trying to kill David. Think about what that could have looked like. But rather than submitting to God, rather than submitting to his word, Saul stubbornly held on to that which was no longer his. And the result, the Lord will tear the kingdom away from Saul. And so now Saul will predict Saul's downfall. Look at verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Here we see the Lord will hand Israel over to the enemy of God. And tomorrow Saul and his sons will be dead. The Lord will punish Saul by death in battle. Now another key observation here is that Israel will lose the battle. Why? Because of Saul. Yes, countless lives will be lost due to the disobedience of Saul. This is the uh, the representative character of the kingship, and it's something that we should know. All too well, the king is supposed to obey and rule for the people. And just as the people benefit from the king's obedience, so the people die because of the king's disobedience. What we see here is Saul not so much the consequences of our own sin, although that is implied. But what we should see is what kind of king we need. If our fate is tied to our king, then we need a better king than Saul. Later we'll see this, and I'll go ahead and just put all my cards out on the table. We need a better king than David. Remember, Saul was like a king, excuse me, was a king like the nations. He won the People's Choice Award. The Israelites thought they needed a king like Saul. Well, as you can imagine, this only makes Saul more terrified. Who knows what Saul expected? Think about this. What, what was he expecting by using a necromancer? Well, he just received a little more than he was expecting, and I don't think he got what he thought he was going to get. By calling up the dead, the dead Samuel, he heard what he already heard from the living Samuel. Thus Saul falls down as though dead. Ironically, Saul is shown one last mercy, though, here in our narrative. The necromancer sees Saul's agony, and she presses him to eat. Saul needs the strength for his last journey. And the necromancer even slaughters a fattened calf for Saul. She prepares a quick feast for him. This witch, this necromancer, this medium, 
gives a barbecue dinner for a man on death row. She gives him strength to face the end like a man. We don't know if this necromancer was an Israelite or not, if she worshipped the Lord or not. Regardless, she is a practitioner of the dark arts, which is forbidden. She does have an unlawful profession. And yet, on the dark night of this narrative, she is the only one that shows any sense of conscience and compassion. In our narrative, she's the only one. She's the one that reminded Saul of his own law. She is more hesitant to break God's law than he is. And then with Saul condemned to death, she feeds him one last meal. She shows a bit of kindness to a man who deserved no kindness at all. This wicked witch honors the office of Saul, even when he dishonored it himself. She recognizes the dignity of God in Saul, although Saul deserves to die. Yes, it's a rather remarkable scenario, isn't it, that common grace mercy can show up in the most unusual places. And yet this chapter closes with a brilliant contrast for us. You see, it closes with an image of a condemned, judged king who failed to obey because he was never content with the word of God. We see in Saul the downward destructiveness of sin. For Saul was his own worst enemy. We see a king that not only dies for his own sin, but he sends many of his own people to an early grave as well. But this picture is contrasted with the image of the last chapter. Remember, it's a contrast of the previous chapter that we covered last week. In fact, Samuel even points us to this. The Lord has torn the kingdom from your hands and he gave it to your neighbor, to David. You got to get a hold of this. What is David doing while Saul is consorting with the necromancer? You guys remember last week, he was conquering the promised land. He was destroying the Amalekites, the very ones that Saul refused to destroy. While David was destroying idolaters, Saul is engaging in a type of idolatry. Saul is engaging in in one of the worst, darkest things you could do, and he violates God's law all the while David is obeying God's law. In short, God is keeping His promises. He promised to punish Saul and to bring up a new king. And this is what the Lord is doing. The Lord is bringing about in this chapter... And something for you to learn. Never forget when you start thinking about the wicked witch of Endor that God's promises are yes and amen, that His word stands and we don't have to go beyond His word. God is doing exactly what He said. We see God doing in David as a picture of what He ultimately does for us in Christ. Under Saul... 
Israel rejected David. They told him that he was no king. They treated him like an outlaw. He was exiled over to the Philistines. And this is what was done to our Lord. The priests would not accept the kingship of Christ. They too branded him as an outlaw and they handed him over to whom? To the Romans. They mocked Jesus with a charge. You remember that mockery? That mockery? The king of the Jews. Oh, they didn't know what they were doing, did they? What a joke. He's no king. The priests used the Romans to exile Jesus from the land of the living, but during our Lord's exile, what was He doing? He was conquering. Even sin and death, our true enemies. The Lord Jesus was keeping His unbreakable promise, and it is this, to save sinners, to save us from our own sin. Yes, between the contrast of Saul and David, you again see the wonderful truth of what Jesus did for you and me. That He died while you were yet sinners. While we were still His enemies, Jesus was being your King even when you didn't want Him. Yes, He is King of all to the redeemed and the the unredeemed alike. He was your sacrifice when you didn't even think you needed one. This was Jesus' amen to all of God's promises for your salvation. And if Jesus kept His promises in His death, think about this. If He kept the promises of God in His death, He is much more able and will keep it now that He is alive. For make no mistake, Christ still speaks to you. Not as a ghost from a grave, not through some necromancer, rather as the one who died and is alive forever more, and He speaks through the preached Word of God and the means of grace every Lord's Day in our hearts. There are some that will travel thousands of miles to go get that now word. You know, that prophecy. They would go speak or hear a false prophet and sit under the means of grace and listen to the word. Brothers and sisters, he is alive. And what does he say to us? He declares that He is coming again. He died for your justification. He's come again for your resurrection. From His throne in heaven, He declares to you that He is the one who is and was and who is coming. This is the imperishable word of Christ to you that you hear every Lord's day through the means of grace. And so rather than seeking illicit means to figure out the hidden things of God that do not belong to us, believe in the word of Christ. You don't have to seek an ooey-gooey feeling. We don't need liver shivers. We need God's word in our lives. Hold fast to that. To that, I got southern all of a sudden. <laughs> we must trust in God's word above all else. We, brothers and sisters, heaven and earth will pass away, 
But God's word will remain forever. This is a promise that you stand on. So remain content in what the Lord has given to us in His word. It's precisely in the Lord's return that Christian divination pops up. Give me a few more minutes. Yes, thankfully, necromancy doesn't seem to be too common these days, but we should not be blind to forms of divination in the church. Whether it's looking for a golden age, comparing the book of Revelation to headline hermeneutics, you know, newspaper headlines, or the necromatic praying to saints, or speculative eisegesis. It's not exegesis, it's eisegesis. They're adding to Scripture. They're not pulling from the Bible. My point is this. In the body of Christ as a whole, there is plenty of discontent with God's Word and trying to find the secret things, to look for signs, to have special knowledge, to have a feeling. And yet God has given us only one sign, And that is Christ is coming like a thief in the night. The sign is a non-sign. Christ will come when we least expect it. And so what are we commanded? To believe. To trust. We must be ready, being faithful to the end. And holding fast to the gospel that He has given to us. It is enough. Well, in closing... Christ has given us an imperishable promise, certified in His own death and in particular in His resurrection. And He has given us the power and grace of His Spirit to save us from our sins and to keep us for the resurrection. So may we cling. May we hold fast to the glorious and sure gospel of our Lord and our King, given to us in love and mercy. And may we never forget that He always does. Is that good English? It's good theology. He always does what He says He's going to do. This heaven and earth will pass away, but nothing can snatch you out of Christ's hand. This is the sure promise of your Savior to build you up even when you have weak faith to comfort you through all of life's unknowns. Brothers and sisters, we can admit this. There is a lot we don't know. Can we we acknowledge that? There's a lot we we don't know about life. We don't know a lot about the future. We freak out when there's an election cycle about the trials and tribulations we're going to have. Nothing is certain when it comes to that, but more firmer than the mountains themselves is that Christ died for you and that He is coming and that He conquered your sin on your behalf. Stand on that. When all hell is coming right at you, stand on what the Lord has given you and don't seek after things that have not been given to us. So be firm in Christ's promises that nothing, nothing can take you away from Him.